This is a CBC podcast. The following podcast is about family relationships and the harms of colonization on Indigenous people in Canada. It contains depictions of racism and abuse. If you need support, you can find information about where to turn for help at cbc.ca/theherboriginal. This was my dad's favorite hymn. This is the uh, talk about how we first lost, uh, how we first uh, lose our 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 culture and tradition. Some Christians tried to extinguish First Nations culture by severing us from our traditions, spirituality, and families. Others were caught in it. People like my dad, who walked an impossible path between faith, indoctrination, and abuse. I'm Rudy Kelly. This is the Herb Original, Episode Four: The Old Rugged Cross. The first minister, and his name was Mr. Crosby. And he was deadly against the Indians. A feast, potlatch, they put a stop to that. And finally he put a stop on people making a totem pole. I thought I had heard my dad's voice for the last time nearly three decades ago. I'm 30 years old and walking out of a video rental store in Prince Rupert. I'm about to get into my car when a middle-aged First Nations couple walking past recognizes me. Their faces soften. We're sorry to hear about your dad, the man says. My startled expression tips him off that I haven't heard. The man apologizes and I hustle into my car and start it. I squeeze the steering wheel and take a deep breath. I think. No, 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 no. I rush home, and when I throw open the door, my wife is standing there. The look on her face confirms it. My father has died. I sag like a deflated balloon. The inconceivable has happened, and it hits me harder than I expected. I race to my car again and drive across town to the hospital and rush through the front doors and past the front desk, taking the elevator up to the floor my dad is on. I'm the last sibling to arrive. I feel guilty that I wasn't there with my family at the biggest moment of our lives. But my cousin Sandra had already been there. I am... Um... I was going to see him that morning. I had three questions to ask him. And my brother phoned me and told me that he's at the hospital. He had a heart attack. And so we raced up to the hospital, and they had him in a back room. 
on us. He was by himself, and he was awake, but he was staring, like, way far away. It's the only way I can explain it. It was like he was somewhere else, right? His eyes were open. And I had to call him a couple of times, uncle, uncle. We said we were just going to get a bite to eat. And I came back. They told me he was gone. It was like looking into the abyss. My three brothers were in the hospital room, sitting by my dad's side, their eyes red, and not just from tears. Mm. Me and Cliff, me and Cliff were drunk. Really drunk the night before, we passed out, and then I, I heard I heard noise. I got up. I went into the living room, but before I got to the living room, they were carrying Dad out in that stretcher. And I figured, oh well, he's he had a heart attack. He'll be at the hospital. So me and Cliff didn't go up there until three or four o'clock. By then, he had already passed away. And uh, when we got in there. Uh, it didn't dawn on me. I just sat there. I was still a little bit hungover, and I looked at Mom. She was crying. And I, and I finally noticed that Dad's chest wasn't going up and down. And I said, oh, my, he passed away. Hmm. I felt so embarrassed. Because Chinksy, I think it was someone that phoned me, said, are you guys coming to the hospital? You're dead, you know? Yeah, yeah. But when you're hungover, me and Cliff were just sitting there. And then there's Dad. An oxygen tube is jammed in his mouth. I'm angry to see it there. It seems undignified to leave him like that. A shrunken giant, lying under a white sheet, his head and neck still visible. The king is dead. And they left the room and left me with him. And I remember standing there and was like looking into the abyss because I knew that he was the only one that people respected, that could tell people what was right and what was wrong, and they would listen to him. And I knew that we were in big trouble. Later that day, we're at Someone Has Died Central, a cousin's home on my mom's side. We're all there, all eight Kelly kids huddled around my heartbroken mom, but we don't stay long. My father's family calls, the Dud Awards. We're told that we're supposed to be with them, my father's tribe. None of us want to go, but tradition must be followed. We trudge over to the Dudaward's house, our heads hung like tired prisoners that were caught trying to escape. I don't notice anything about the house, what it looks like, just the feeling. It feels small, like we're crowded inside a den, sitting knee to knee, eating sandwiches and small pastries, sipping coffee and Cokes for hours. Even though they are gracious hosts, I don't want to be here. I still can't shake the resentment, the bitter feeling that, in my father's eyes and in theirs, my siblings and I are a distant second.
The memorial is held at the Salvation Army Hall, a venue that is way too small for a large throng of mourners. The coffee makers burble continuously. There are mountains of salmon sandwiches, fry bread, and chow mein, and a vat of beef soup. There are over 200 people. Many of them have spilled out into the parking lot. And then there's us, the Kellys, the Beverly Hillbillies. We all look lost, bewildered, and unsure of how we're supposed to act. We're dressed in our Sunday finest, which is probably everyone else's Tuesday finest. Half of my family is gue, too poor to dress in a manner befitting a king's farewell. I'm the only one of my brothers with a blazer, but only because it's a leftover from my wedding. One brother is wearing borrowed pants. My sisters are in blouses and slacks, the hippie in jeans. Rest in peace, man. People are glancing at us, whispering, like we don't measure up to the great chief, Nice Wibas. Then the service starts, and oh boy, it's grand. An unending procession of people climbing onto the stage to pay tribute. And he had a real kind spirit, man. He never raised his voice at anyone that I can remember. Basically, he took me under the wing. You know, I also had a good relationship with Daddy. And like I say, he was the first one I phoned when my uncle died, because... Eh? Of our relationship. At one point, my brother whispers, Who the hell are they talking about? I don't know this guy. The next day, the funeral service is held at the United Church. The coffin was an issue because of my dad's size. One of my brothers quips, We need a grand piano to bury him in. Before the funeral, one of the Dutt Awards said they were having trouble finding a pair of pants that would fit, and they might just dress him in a suit from the waist up with a blanket laid over his lower body. But my oldest sister, Edith, would have none of that. She insisted that he have pants, because he always wore a nice suit. I remember my dad getting all, as he pronounced it, gussied up. It seemed like every weekend... He would be in the bathroom in his snuggies or underwear and his undershirt, shaving with a razor and foam as he hummed the tune. Then he'd put on his best black pants and jacket and knot his own tie, which always hung just above his belt. A couple of slaps of old spice on his face and he was ready for prime time. I thought he was pretty cool that way. After my dad's funeral, a long procession of vehicles leave the church. It feels like a parade. We even have a police escort. People are lined up on the sidewalks, waving to us. My brother grins and waves back like he's the queen. I pull his hand down and chastise him, but I can't suppress a little smile. At the cemetery, a trumpeter plays taps. The sound of that lone trumpet catches me, right in the heart. My dad loved his trumpet. He was always the front man for an adoring audience, 
He played in front of packed rooms with a number of different groups, like the Hartley Bay Five and his last band, Kelly's Combo. I would get $5 to help him load his instruments into the Moose Lodge every Saturday night. He also played trumpet in parades and special events with the Lambs Marching Band. I remember the red uniforms, and he played at home. When I was a kid reading or doing homework in my room, he'd sneak up behind me and blast his trumpet. I would almost hit the roof, like that cartoon cat, his claws dug into the ceiling, his fur sticking out. For my dad, the trumpet was always the good friend he could count on. Until one night, my brother Erwin and I were sitting in the living room while my dad was practicing in his bedroom, mere feet away. Practice was not going well. He kept going off key. My brother and I exchanged anxious glances when... There was a loud crash. Something being thrown at the bedroom wall. Erwin and I looked at each other, wide-eyed, but said nothing. After a moment, my dad came out of his room, holding the trumpet. It was mangled. He held it up, his eyes watery, and shook his head, as if to say, See? Like he had been warning us all along about his decline. We never knew the exact medical reason, but it wouldn't be long before he could no longer hold the book or walk and he never played the trumpet again. At the cemetery, my mom goes to lay her wreath and collapses onto the coffin, crying. She's been crying all week, and given how he treated her, it makes no sense to me. Then, as we're about to leave, someone cries out, Look! and points to the sky. It's like a movie ending, as an eagle, my father's crest, circles overhead. A coincidence, I think. Eagles are abundant in Prince Rupert. But I don't say it, because I know the family finds comfort in the idea that the eagle is there to escort him to the next world. And because it's better to hear them talk of eagles rather than saying my dad has gone to heaven. Even if I were a Christian... That would really surprise me. The Indians in the olden days, they don't praise totem pole. This is one of the last recordings of my dad, recalling the tradition of the totem pole for the Simshan people, and how a Christian minister tried to suppress it. It's just a symbol of, of where they come from, of what house, and the story uh, behind the the. The history. So they so they don't write in the olden days, but uh, but anybody looks at a totem pole that tells us a story there where they come from, and that's what it and that's what it is. They don't they don't praise totem pole, but yet but yet Mr. Crosby say that was evil, that was uh, that's a, that's a devil. This was the world my dad was born into a time when totem poles and the potlatch were banned. And, as my cousin Sandra explains, traditions, leadership, and decision-making were forced underground. So there was a big, long stretch where really nothing was done. Um, things were done quietly because we couldn't go public. But they used to start every meeting singing, Onward Christian Soldiers, 
because we weren't allowed to have political meetings. We could go to jail for it. So they <laughs> Onward Christian Soldiers was sung. So anybody heard them, they think they were having oh, a Christian yeah. gathering, and <laughs> they were being very political, actually, and they could have gone to jail for that. And yet, even though religious institutions outlawed my family's spiritual and political practices, we still went to church. Here's my brother Irwin. Dad used to be a, he used to be a part-time, what do you call those, not a minister, Sunday, Sunday school teacher. I remember we used to go to Sunday school and he used to be preaching, filling in for the pastor. And I remember sitting there with mom and dad and mom and shh, telling like, me to go out all the time. And, it, <laughs> and I, you know, and then dad would be up there reading from the Bible and that. See, nobody remembers that. My parents also loved to go to church to sing the hymns. At weddings and other occasions, we would fold our hands and I would pretend to say prayers and sing along. I was even married in a church to please my parents. I thought, what harm could it do? But then... It was just really shocking to hear. To come loops, Taisha Kwepmik Chief Roseanne Kashmir says her First Nation is grappling with the grisly discovery. When I first heard about the discovery of children's remains in Kamloops in the spring of 2021, I was filled with unease all day. I didn't really know why. I mean, like most Indigenous people, I strongly suspected that such graves existed. But then, that evening, alone in my basement, I started to cry. Like a marionette whose strings have been cut, crumpling to the floor, shoulders shaking, gulping for air. So many tears I didn't know I had, because the remains of these children could have been my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my parents, my siblings, me. Then stories from residential school survivors began pouring out. And during coverage of the Pope's apology in Edmonton, one survivor's interview hit me hard. We the survivors become um, uh, not a very good person because uh, we were trying to I guess we were trying to uh, to take revenge against uh, the church but we turned against our loved ones and I want to say I'm very sorry to my wife my children for my shortcoming during those years and from this church from this point on I'm trying to be a better father, although that my, uh, my, um, my wound, my deep wound, my heart still going to be there. His words took hold of me like a hand around my throat, and something shifted inside me. Was that what happened in my family? The violence and abuse trickling down? And what was he apologizing for? I'm often told that I'm a good father, and it makes me uncomfortable. I have never hit my boys, but I still glare or yell at them for little things, like being forgetful or clumsy. Because those weren't little things to my dad. Most other dads I knew. Even now, 30 years after my father's death, if I miss an appointment, 
forget something at home? I pound on the steering wheel and curse myself. If something is spilled, it feels like my nerves are going to jump out of my skin because when I was a kid, it was followed by a smack in the face. My dad was not sent away to residential school, but the school came to him in 1926. And uh, and Henry says to me, I don't want no, I don't want no Indian language in school, and that goes with everybody else in in this in this class, in this room, in this classroom. I don't want no Indian language. And anybody who's Indian language is going to be punished. So I got it. I was aware of that. But then we start to play. We start to play outside. But I thought, well, I'm safe now. We have a recess. So I'm, I thought I was safe. I was using my language again with my, with my playmates. And she said, said, I heard you were using your language when you were playing out. And I warned you not to use your language around here. So you're going to stay in after school and write, write it out 300 times. That I'm, I'm not, I mustn't use, I must not use Indian language in school. My dad was punished for speaking his language. He was taught that his culture was wrong. Just like I was in school. Teachers talked like we were extinct. They made us feel dirty and inferior, announcing out loud who had head lice and needed to get the special shampoo. And they were quick to punish us. Driving in his van, my brother Irwin remembers the feeling too. It was a residential school. We used to get spanked and put in the corner all the time. There used to be about five or six of us, all natives, standing in the corner. I had a poker broke on me, and I, I didn't think too much of it because I, I always thought it was bad. You had to wa- walk like soldiers, and if you didn't, they grabbed your ears and they pulled you off the ground. You just screamed and didn't mean anything. We never told Dad or Mom about it. That who knows what happened to them when they are going to school. In residential school, Murray and Louisa Smith were taught the same. Now in their 80s, Murray is eager to crack a joke or share a smile. Today he's wearing his traditional vest, black felt adorned in indigenous form-lined faces. Underneath he is wearing a bright orange Every Child Matters t-shirt, a shirt in memory of the children who died or disappeared in residential schools. Louisa sits quietly beside him, like she's stealing herself. I always tell tell my friends that... uh... Louise is so crazy about me, she wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> he also tells people that I married him for his money. <laughs> I first met them when I worked at the Prince Rupert Friendship House, and they were in the elders group. They stood for a lot of things that I value in a couple. Happy, strong, a bastion of traditional family values. At the time, we thought we knew everything. (laughs) Little did I know that I had much, much to learn. Yeah. Yeah. 
especially uh, in terms of um, and being a mother, being a parent, and, <clears throat> and not realizing at the time that I had no skills of being a mother. Um, instead of being the loving mother that I should have been, I was the matron based on my institu institutional upbringing, the residential school. Louisa's words aren't what I expected. I assumed that she was a wonderful mother, down-to-earth, kind, loving, supportive. But then she tells me that she was removed from her family at just six years old and sent off to residential school by boat to Vancouver Island, where she would spend the next 10 years. The trauma is so great that I shut, shut off. My brain is shut off. I don't remember. And even in the residential school experience, there's only a few things that I do remember. Um, and they tell me that the mind um, is a wonderful machine. Um, and it will shut down automatically to save you from that traumatic experience. Mine was off a lot during that time, all that trauma that I experienced. Murray was also taken away. He traveled by train from Prince Rupert to a residential school in Alberta. When I was 13 years old, I always remember getting off the train in Port Edward. Then just out of the blue, my mother says to me, I'm going to talk to you about Shemaliach and your tribal name. I told her to be quiet in an unkind way. That's old-fashioned. I don't talk about that. Louisa survived residential school, but her spirit was crushed, and with it, her identity. For me, it was... Um the bombardment of the <clears throat> the residential school uh, telling me that everything about my culture is evil. They wanted it all to go. The language, the culture, and my dad saw it, lived it. My cousin, Sandra Didaward, recalls stories of my dad knocking on doors of village elders, gathering as much knowledge as he could, because someone had to. Because he didn't just know our history and our house and our tribe. He knew all of it because he visited all those people. He interacted with all of those old people, and he knew all kinds of things. And, was, and he could keep it here because you're trained, you know, like from to... Taking information orally, like that's a training. And he had that training and he could just remember everything. Because they were going to tear it away from us, from people like Louisa. They made uh, me feel like, um, made me feel ashamed of being an Indian. The language was whipped out of me, whipped out of us by a black leather strap. <clears throat> a lot of the times the children, the kids uh, would line up 
and uh, we'd have our hands out waiting for the strap and all the kids are there and uh, ten straps on each hand and if you pull away trying to protect yourself they'll start from one again to ten um, <clears throat> The way, uh, their way of getting us to conform, um, to do away with my, my language, to do away with my culture. And so I became ashamed, ashamed of being a native, ashamed of my language. And there was times where I wished that I was born another race. Oh, <laughs> That was uh, what was instilled into me. In the years since, Louisa and Marie have received counseling. And they've learned to counsel others who struggle with the trauma of the residential school experience and its consequences, like violence, drug and alcohol addiction, and crime. Marie is one of the many counselors across the country certified by the federal government to respond to hotline calls from residential school survivors. And Louisa, who for many years was burdened with shame for what she went through, refuses to carry it any longer. And it took me an awful long time to understand the word forgiveness because it sounded too biblical to me. It sounded too Christian. And this is Mr. Peak and all that he did to me. I'm going to give it back to him. It doesn't belong to me. It's not my shame to carry. I'm going to do away with that. Here's a pile for Mrs. Brown and all that she did to me. She whittled me down to almost nothing. And they're not true. So I'm going to give this back to her. It's like the giveaway at a feast. I'm going to give it back. Louisa's words touched me deeply. My dad gave me many things. Can I give them back? My mind immediately goes to the violence, the pain. But what about the good he did? The guarding of the culture, the duty to his people, to the land and the water. Fifteen years ago, my partner Grania and I were looking out at the ocean, thousands of miles away, in Vietnam. We're on the deck of a small restaurant, and below us, a group of young boys are playing, with the ocean's waves rolling in behind them. Suddenly, an image of my dad comes into my mind, and I start to cry. Stunned, Grania asks me why I'm crying. I don't know myself. The memory is from three decades earlier. I was coming home after spending time at a correctional center in Terrace, a community about an hour and a half away from Prince Rupert. My crime was being at a party that had gotten out of control and being too drunk to get the hell out of there. My dad hadn't bothered to come and see me when I was in the Prince Rupert cells, waiting to be transferred to the facility in Terrace and he never came to see me while I served my time. 
So, 45 days later, when I was finally released, I didn't call him to ask for a ride from the bus depot. I took a cab instead. But when I arrived home, there was my dad, taking groceries out of the trunk of his car. Scared, I wanted to ask the cabbie to drive on, but my dad had seen us. He watched me get out of the cab. I wasn't sure what he was going to say or how he felt about me after I'd shamed him, the golden boy in jail. Hey, Dad, I said and walked towards him. He put the bags back in the trunk and turned to me. His eyes began to fill with tears, and there was a small smile on his face. Hey, boy, he said. I dropped my duffel bag, and he gave me a big hug, one of his huge, powerful hugs that felt like he was going to crush the life out of me. He forgave me, and he loved me. They just, they just put a stop to keep our own culture to this, and, 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 and our, there was no need. I hear now that they found out that, they, that they're wrong. I was just told recently that says the church, the native church, apologized. They found out that they were wrong with what they did uh, to stop the, the kids in the early days of uh, to using their language, send them to residential school, cutting down totem poles. So that's that's it for. I'll never know how the church changed my father's life, but I can learn from all of the indigenous people around me who experienced it. I can look at myself, how I was also shaped by a culture of shame, and maybe I too can heal, just like Louisa. I told Grania the story of me coming home from jail, my father's huge hug. She grabbed my hand as we tried to make sense of why that memory came to me now, in this place. Maybe it was the boys playing. Poor kids looking for scraps yet still smiling. Kids like me. Or maybe it was being on the beach, watching the waves roll in. The ocean reaching deep inside of me, like it always does. The water is also my my strength. Mm-hmm. And I do my crying and everything there, too. But the water teaches me also when it's just glassy calm, just so calm. I talk to the Creator and tell Him yeah. this is how I want to be. This is how I want my emotions to be. Sometimes when it's windy and stuff and the, the big waves are there and you could hear the waves hitting against the, the rocks or the, the, the beach. And knowing that my emotions can be those as big as those and how it pounds against my spirit. Pounding, pounding. 
Like Louisa, the ocean is where I turn when I'm feeling sad or lost. It is my religion, huge and mysterious, and where I go to for answers. Because the ocean is life. It's where my people, the Simshed Nation, come from. It feeds us, nurtures us, sustains us. But are we taking care of it? On the next episode of The Herb Original... I try to carry on my father's legacy of leadership in his home village of Lacwalams, in the midst of a global confrontation that would split families and friends. Today, the Tsimshian people and the Gitboard Yards stand proudly to stand this pole. And learn that the tug of war between tradition and survival affects us all. That's in episode five. People of the Salmon. Listen to your heart and you'll know what to do. The Herb Original is written and produced by me, Rudy Kelly, and Carolina DeWright. Listen to your heart. The sound editing is by Jeff Walker. Our senior producers are Catherine Hansen, Jay Bertinoli, and Sherelle Tolan. Special thanks to David Jones, our CBC archivist. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.